So welcome everybody. Glad that you're here this morning. We are continuing with the season of Eastertide. It's week five of Eastertide. And we're reading from, as we read earlier, from the Gospel of John. You know, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' big teaching is the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, it's the Sermon on the Plain, very similar. But in John, his big teaching is something called the Farewell Discourse, which is this teaching that's embedded in kind of a conversation among friends during the Last Supper, in John 13 through 17, where Jesus teaches them how to remain faithful in a post-resurrection world. And if you remember kind of the the progression of the story, Jesus had been in hiding out in the wilderness. He came back to Jerusalem to raise Lazarus, which is when the the power brokers decided they needed to kill him. Um, Mary anointed his feet with oil at Bethany. The next morning, he had his triumphal entry. Um, He warned everybody, these guys are going to try to kill me. And some rejected him. Many came to believe in him, including many Jewish leaders who had to keep it quiet for fear of retribution. And so... In Jerusalem at the time, there was this big dispute over Jesus during the festival. And Jesus said, look, believe me, don't believe me. I I don't judge. I'm just saying my father has the way to the life that you are all looking for. And if you follow me, I can show you the way. And so he took off with his guys to go have the Passover, washed their feet, predicted his betrayal, and then launched into this, this goodbye speech, a farewell discourse which began by saying, look, I have to go away and, and you can't come with me. Like, you're going to look for me, but I won't be there. And then he says, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. That's how his, his goodbye speech, his big teaching in John begins. It's an interesting thing to say because, you know, his guys are already under a command, the Ten Commandments, the Law and the Prophets. And so Jesus is challenging the authority of those commands here. He's questioning the validity of that approach to life and, and faithfulness to which they had all devoted their lives, Jesus included. And, and so he, he begins his goodbye address by saying, I'm giving you a whole new command, love one another. And this command is more central. It's more foundational than any commands we've received before it. And this is eventually what, what got him killed, like questioning their entire way of life. And, you know, this is serious stuff for them. For centuries, their belief had been that if, if they could just get their act together, you know, like organize their common life in a certain way that God would come make God's dwelling with them and be with them, protect them. But this would only happen if everybody would get on board, when everybody starts um, obeying these commands. But of course, the commands were like, do this and also don't do that. The more you're told you can't do something, the more you just want to do it, right? And so they would find loopholes in the law for every command. And then the priests would come around and try to plug the loophole with a, like a new thing. And then these dis- disputes would arise over the rules and the loopholes and the reactions. By the way, that is, um, the name that goes by is the oral tradition or the oral Torah. It was this running commentary on how to uphold the law that developed over centuries. And anytime there was a dispute, they would add more details. And so by the time of Christ, the law, the Jewish law, had become so complex 
It was absurdly hard to follow. Most people couldn't even do it if they tried. It was too involved. Plus, if it's that involved, how would they even learn it all? They had to work. Plus, there were all these disputes. Who knew which side was right? And if you're poor, like, forget it. It's just too expensive and time-consuming. So in Jesus' day, all of Israel was also embroiled in this massive conflict, just how to negotiate the demands of the Jewish law. It almost became like an idol that they worshipped. These absurdly complex rules and customs, impossible to follow, um, fueling kind of an unconscious desire to transgress them at the same time. And some people called for reform. Some people pressured people to conform. And they kind of separated into factions and fought for control until eventually the law, everybody could kind of tell, it was doing more harm than good. Instead of shaping them into the kinds of people who could bear God's image to the rest of the world, the law was blinding them to the very nature of God, to like the unique wisdom about life, about God and the world and what it means to be human that was their birthright as the people of God. Now, before we start judging them, we should remember, you know, what Christianity is like right now, today. Lots of fighting over who's in and who's out and who says, right? And you have to say the sinner's prayer and accept Jesus into your heart. And also you might want to hate these people and join this party, right? Or um, you need to also speak in tongues or, or don't speak in tongues. Like, or, or you need to be baptized, but not as an infant because that one doesn't count. Or you can be as an infant, <laughs> but, but then you have to go through confirmation, right? So there, there's... And it's all, always the same people who want to fight about those things also want to fight about the government and culture wars and try to force people to embrace or at least submit to their interpretation of the world. So this is not just a bunch of Jewish people a long time ago. Every religion has this tendency to devolve from a dynamic way of connecting to the divine into a powerful religious ideology that mostly serves to justify all the decisions they've already made about life in the world. And when I say ideology, um, you probably think of like the typical definition, which is just like a rigid set of rules and beliefs and ideals, usually around politics or economics or religion, like a guiding philosophy that explains how the world works, but also everyone, everyone's place within that World, so, so in a sense, ideology's chief role isn't about truth or, or orthodoxy. It's really about sustaining a particular social structure. So, for example, like serfs in medieval Europe, they were told that society had been organized by what they called the great chain of being and that God had chosen every link in the chain for every person choosing some to rule and be rich and some to be serfs and be poor. And everybody talked about it. Nobody questioned it. It was embraced even by the church. And so the the serfs never even considered that there might be another option, like a better life, a more fair and equitable structure. Because it was their ideology, the great chain of being. This is how ideology functions. It's this rigid set of beliefs and ideas that really isn't just about ideas. It's about sustaining the current social structures. Just telling people, look, the way things are is the way they have to be. 
And every social group, every social group, even the ones we're a part of, have some kind of ideology at work. That's, that's really kind of the first kind of ideology. There's actually a second kind as well. It's a little more difficult to understand. In fact, kind of, I think outside of the teachings of Christ and the scriptures, it's been largely ignored by humankind until um, last 50, 100 years. I want us to try and see it, though, because I think it has deep insight into what's happening in, in our text for today. So when you, when you hold an ideology, it seems to you completely obvious. You know what I mean? Like, this is just self-evidently true, at least within the group. And within the group, it's hardly ever questioned because it explains how the world works and how everything fits together, right? But over time, that ideology um, begins to sort of limit the group's imagination. Um, and, and the truth of their ideology seems so obvious that nothing else seems possible, you know, or thinkable or even sayable. And all the arguments in favor of their ideology are well rehearsed. Everybody knows them. And... And nobody thinks to actually question them and wouldn't even really know how if they wanted to. And, and the truth of their ideology inside the group, it just feels so self-apparent, you know, so obvious that anyone outside their group who, who doesn't hold that ideology kind of seems like they're a little thick, you know, like a little slow on the uptake, not able to see this thing that's so obviously true. It's like if you grew up, um, as I did, um, during the Cold War. This is how I always felt about Russians, you know? That they, they had somehow been duped by, and, and just were somehow missing the truth. It seemed, you know, communism, socialism, this seemed obviously dumb and had no kind of wisdom to it. If you're a little younger, you might feel the same way about um, Islam or about Muslim nations. You know, surely they couldn't have a legitimate beef with us and our good ideology. And this is part of how we know that like, our beliefs have transitioned into some kind of ideology. It's that, that um, anyone who has different beliefs seems self-deceived, while we seem just you know, perfectly wide awake. And so this means for us, the ideologies we hold, things like capitalism, democracy, even just certain assumptions about words like freedom or um, property or possessions or money or the distribution of wealth, all that stuff, they don't seem like us, um, they, they don't seem to us like ideologies at all. It's just like the truth, self-evidently, about, about the world. And those who can't, can't see it are a little bit slow. And this really kind of exposes the second kind of ideology, which is, um, not all the things we say we believe, it's what all the things we say we believe are hiding from us. Does that make sense? Hiding about the world and ourselves. And it's, so it's, it's mostly unconscious to us. So there are, there are conscious beliefs that explain the world and our place within it. That's the first kind of ideology. And then there's a truckload of things that our, our conscious beliefs end up obscuring, masking from us. That's the second kind of ideology, the unconscious things that all our conscious beliefs are hiding from us, that they cover up. So like in Christianity today, there's a big conflict over the role of women in the church. It's a big fight. And a whole big chunk of Christians say women should not be pastors and should not be elders. We're obviously not in, in that bunch. 
But for them, this is a belief that's obvious and, and can never be questioned. And those who, in their own camp, who question it, they get pretty rough with them. They, they power up and kick them out and try to silence them. And so when people outside of their group try to engage on that question, it's almost like they, they can't even engage. They just look at us, look at us like we're stupid, like we, there's something we don't get. Or, or they try to power up on us because that's what they're used to doing. Try to out-Bible people in, in proof text. And, and then when you sort of point out the fact that you, you have actually studied the Bible and, um, and there are inconsistencies and problems with their interpretations, it's like they can't even hear it. It's like you're speaking a different language. They're just kind of unable to see it because of their own ideology. It makes them blind to any counter-argument. But then when you, you start to kind of tease apart the way that their ideology Um, It's unspoken, it's unconscious to them, but the way that it has become expressed in their institutions and the way they actually organize things, you start to see what their ideology really is. It's displayed in things like controlling behaviors of men over women, patterns of abuse that are embedded in their social structures, from the family to churches to the institutions they build. You keep digging, you can almost always find some form of sexual abuse of women and attempts to cover it up and excuse it. So you, you, even if they can't like speak it, it's speaking through the, the communities and institutions they make. There are a truckload of things. Their ideology is completely hidden from them, but it's right there on the surface if you look, including a, a mostly, I think, unconscious desire to control women's bodies. And not to have to um, contend with women as equals, like we've read about so many times in, in the book of Genesis. But, but rather to, to dictate to women the terms of their lives. Now, their conscious ideology is, is much softer. I mean, they say things like, you know, men are supposed to lay down their lives for women. And women whose submission to male leadership um, is a sign of strength. Right, that's that's what they'll say. But the unspoken ideology is about, is there on the surface of the things they build. It's about men as saviors of women, and the protection of male privilege and power, and keeping women in some servient roles. I, I really think they're mostly unaware of this, but you can see it when when you look at what they do. And so these are the two kinds of ideology. There's there's the beliefs we say we hold that we can all recite and they reinforce our social structures and then there's what those beliefs hide from us about our true motivations and fears and prejudices and desires. Nobody escapes this, ever. No, it's inescapable. In fact, the moment we think we've arrived at some position of truth from which we can sort of denounce the lies of another ideology is the moment we, we know we're most fully captive to our own ideology. In fact, you could say it this way. The moment we think we're outside of ideology is the moment we're most trapped within it. We've just become completely, completely blind to it. It's the water we swim in. And, and it's not others. This is us. It's always us. And so you can kind of see where this goes and how it would impact the farewell discourse. Like, when ideologies become really rigid and unchanging, but the culture still changes, they end up kind of doing the opposite of what they're intended to do, or they end up sounding like, um, like a bunch of answers to questions nobody's even asking anymore. And, and 
the people um, are blind to it. And then when they stop functioning well, they get kind of, they circle the wagons, they easily get co-opted by folks who promote them in bad faith, you know. And, and this isn't a problem way back then in Israel. This is a Christian problem right now in the church and really with any, in any part of society. We're constantly doing this. And there's a sense in which Christ's whole entire ministry was this powerful and pointed critique of religious ideology. I mean, most of his ministry was just bringing his disciples face to face with the problems, the unconscious things that embedded in their structure. And when they then reach for some ideology to justify it, it, like, you know, she's a sinner, so she has to be stoned, or, or he's a leper, he needs to live outside the camp, or he's blind, so somebody somewhere must have sinned. When, when they reach for those things, he would just hold the tension, he'd make them choose between some religious ideology and this person he was asking them to embrace. Most of his entire ministry, Jesus' entire ministry, was this passionate subversion of religious ideology, mostly through the cultivation of compassion and love. Even his teaching, I mean, think about his teaching, really was not ideological. He wasn't just transferring information and doctors and doctrines and, and beliefs that would then harden into rigid ideologies. He was asking questions, telling stories. He would tell familiar stories and then invert their meaning, you know, to, just to mess with them. Speaking in riddles, speaking through his actions, usually through solidarity with the outcasts. Jesus was a, a powerful critic of ideology who refused to offer something that then could just be turned into an ideology, or at least that was the idea. And throughout the Gospels, there's this tug of war happening between kind of the relationships that Jesus wanted his followers to embody and the ideologies that always seem to kind of corrupt and ruin those relationships. And his solution to this was he just put them in contact with the least of these, with the, those whose lives got wrecked by their ideological stances. And, and when just a little bit of love and compassion emerged, he would fan that flame, and that, that would just begin to unwind everything. And they'd start questioning this this ideology they were following that left so many people on the outside. And he asked them to repent, to, to turn around, wake up, to see the world with more clarity and live differently and in so doing, come um, more alive than they had been. Um, Thomas Merton would often give an example of what he thought Jesus was doing um, this approach. He said, just imagine that you have inherited a large like elaborately furnished mansion. It's massive and sits on a big estate. And, and you've been just given this thing. The only problem is you don't have the keys to the mansion. Like it's yours, but you can't get inside. And so you, you move there, but you just live in a little tent in the backyard of your furnace mansion. And, and the first weekend, you know, um, in your new place, you invite all your friends and, and relatives over to show off, you know, your new place, and you have a little cookout in the backyard. At first, it seems natural, 
But then after dinner, you kind of just, like, you don't want to brag, but you casually say, like, you, you want to see the place? And they're like, yeah, sure, we love to see the place. And so you walk them around the ground floor, only on the outside of the house. It's like peeking through the windows. And you're trying not to be, you know, too proud, but you're like, this is, a, they call this the grand hall here. This is, this is the library. I have a library now. This is a music room. And while they're oohing and on over your new mansion, you say, let me grab a ladder. We'll go, get up. I'll show, you the, I'll show you the bedrooms. They're on the second floor. And um, they say, well, you know, this is incredible. It's a stunning place that you have. And you say, yeah, I really like it. I think it's nice. I live in a tent in the backyard. And this is, Merton's like, this is what is happening. This is what ideology does to us. Or he would say, a similar one, he'd say, imagine you're actually living in the mansion, but through some tragic mental condition, you think you're actually in a tent in the backyard. And all your friends are trying to convince you, like, you're in the mansion. Even God comes. This is Christ, right? God comes and says, you're already in the house. Just wake up. Look around you and believe that it's true. And I am with you. You're living in a mansion with me, but you can't see it. You can't accept it. And one way to name what it is that blinds us to the reality that, that we're living in a mansion is ideology. It's a name for what blinds us. Even during the, the farewell discourse, Jesus was trying to help them see, you know, I have to go away because I've got to do this thing for you. But their ideology had, had so blinded them that they really end up sounding a little, it's, they don't come off so great in this whole story. It's almost comical. They keep interrupting Jesus with questions that are, you know, they should be beyond this already. So he's saying, I'm, I'm going away somewhere that you can't go. And Peter interrupts. He's like, so where are you, you know, farewelling to? Like, where are you going? Um, and Jesus is like, ah, oh. <laughs> you you can't go with me, Peter, because Peter, Peter is like the Hermione Granger of the Twelve, right? That is just who he is. He's like, oh, ooh, I know, I know. Always the first one to raise his hand, first one out of the boat, you know. He's like, I can too, I can too, I will die for you. And Jesus is like, we'll talk tomorrow morning. <laughs> and so Jesus goes, J -j relax, everybody, like, settle down. I got to I got to go do something. It's my mission. And you can't go because I'm doing it for you. But don't worry. My father's house has many rooms. I'll make sure that you get one. Now remember, their religious ideology was, was shutting all of these people out of the faith. So many that, that you had to kind of wonder if they were really worried they were shut out of the faith. And just projecting all of that. And so Jesus' response to this was to say, you know, my father's house has a lot of space, a lot of rooms. So why does he, he use this? Well, despite what we may have been taught, my father's house is not, would not have been heard by a Jewish hearer at that time as a synonym for heaven. It's not going to heaven to prepare you a room. Sorry if you sang that song when you were in Sunday school. That's not the metaphor that he's using here. The Jewish metaphor um, of the father's house was a thing. 
Like that was a particular trope, a, a thing, a particular thing in Jewish, uh, in the Jewish imagination. So when Jewish sons were married, they didn't go off and buy a bunch of land and build a house on it. They would just build new rooms onto their father's house. That's how they did it. And so generations of sons and daughters, aunts and uncles and, and cousins and grandkids would end up all growing up together in the father's house in this kind of compound. I mean, to this day, if you go to places like Africa or India, you'll often see this. When a house is finished, it'll be brand new, and there will still be rebar sticking out of, like, the top. You can kind of see it there at the top of the pillars or out even to, to the sides, sticking up and out, telling the children, there's always room. There's more rooms in the house. We can always build you a place on. You are always welcome here, right? That's the metaphor that he's working with. And he's not talking about rooms up in heaven. He's talking about how you live your life right now. This is a very common image the Father's house is. And and what what he must do now is is go provide a a way for them so that they can have that same kind of relationship with the Father that Jesus has. So he's promising them membership in in the family of God. He's bringing these ragamuffins into the family. So the house isn't, in this metaphor, in heaven after we die. The house is here. Actually, what turned out to be the church, which is often called the household of faith. And you become part of this family, not by birth or by marriage, but by faith. Faithing your way through life, following the way of Jesus, letting Christ be Lord of your life, which just means to follow him, to do his will in every situation. Now Thomas has a question. He says, um, we don't know the way to this house, right? Which is also the way. This is not a throwaway line either. In, in the Hebrew tradition that, tradition, that is a particular thing. It's the way is a trope. It was actually a shorthand for the way of wisdom which is just one of the things they would say. That is, it was almost like the Star Wars, this is the way, you know, or the Mandalorian. It was the way of wisdom, the way the sages, the wise ones live. And so the way in their, their tradition was a particular mode of being connected to wisdom. And this is what they would have thought of when he said, I am the way, right? Or when he says, I don't know the way. And so, so Thomas is confused right here. He's like, we don't know the way. He thinks Jesus has bought a lair or something for them, you know? It's like a superhero or a house in Miami Beach. And Jesus is like, oh my gosh, Thomas, this isn't about real estate. This, is an, um, this isn't an explanation of like the architecture of heaven. It's about membership in the family of God and the household of faith. That's what Jesus is talking about. And so when Thomas says, you know, we don't have like directions to this place. Jesus says, no, Thomas, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And this is really kind of, the central text in the entire Gospel of John. I am the way, the truth, and the light. The, the I am part recalls the story of 
Moses at the burning bush. Remember when God says, I am that I am. I am pure being. I am the source of all of life. So, so when Jesus says, I am here, he's identifying with that story. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd, the true vine, the gate, the light of the world, the resurrection, and the life. These I am signal that um, Jesus is, is acting here um, as the Father's agent in the world. Does that make sense? He's identifying with I am and saying I am too. So this is much like, um, you know, he's the only begotten son. This is much like what the eldest son, the role eldest sons would take on in Hebrew culture, right? They, they would become the agent of, of the Father. That's, that's what the I am does. When he says, I am the way, um, he's saying, I am the way to the life that, that you're wanting, that you've always been wanting as God's people. And it's connected to my Father and to the family of God, not to like geography or, or architecture. Um, it's, it's connected to a way, a way of being, a way of living in the world. In fact, the earliest name for the, the church was not Christians. It was followers of the way. For centuries, this is what they called themselves. Right? It's, it, and this is all connected to that ancient trope of, of the way, the, the way of wisdom. That's what he's pointing them toward. So now it's Philip's turn to show off what he's got here. Um, and he's like, wait, you're going to show us the Father? And Jesus is like, try to keep up, Philip. Like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like, this is well-covered territory. Um, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And you know, he loves me like a son. Like, we're, we're one. And, and he has this little room on the front of his house. And that's where we've been dwelling this whole time, in the Father's house. Haven't you noticed? The Father dwells in me, and I in him. And once I'm gone, y'all are going to move into the house. It's going to happen to you. You're going to have the same kind of relationship with God that I, I have. But this way, it has nothing to do with the new ideology. It has to do with a way, keep, keeping his commands. A, a way, it, you come to it by faith, by faithing, by walking in a certain way. And following this new command of love. And then he starts into this rabbinic teaching. It's very um, kind of, it's, it's a little bit of flip-flops and a ton of repetition. So verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. What is this command? Love one another as I have loved you. Verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching and my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them or in them. And verse 24, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. So when, when Jesus says, when he, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the, the I am, in this he's saying, I am the oldest son. I am the father's agent here on earth. When he says, I am, I am the way, he means the way of the wise ones, which um, he has now defined as self-sacrificial love. And when he says, I am the truth, he doesn't mean like I am a set of beliefs that then will just harden and become an ideology. He, he means I am, um, I am the truly human 
human who can help you become true as a, as a person. I am the truth that makes you true, truly human. And when he says, I'm the life, he means like the life you're, you're after, the one you've always wanted, that this whole long tradition is about. Like, I am the life where God will come and make God's dwelling with you and be with you and protect you, and you can find peace and wholeness and flourishing. And so I am the way and the truth and the life really isn't, um, isn't about, like, Christian exclusivism. It's saying, like, this is just the path. There is no other path. Um, he's promising a new way of life and, and a, a way of relating and being to one another that can sort of wake us up to the reality that we're already living in the house. We're already children of the Father who isn't trying to give us like the ultimate theology or ideology. He's just trying to dwell in our hearts and live with us every moment of every day. And at the heart of this, this kind of new community that we call the church are, is the spirit of Christ drawing us together and saying, I just want to make my home in your hearts and in, in your, the heart of your community. I mean, in, in the end, you guys, the, the real secret of Christianity is that there is no secret like the path to God has just been thrown open. Anyone can find it. The world itself is set ablaze with the glory of God. God is as seeable as your neighbor, as knowable as the least of these. God is alive in whatever, I don't know, that thing that keeps us coming back here every Sunday morning, you know, that just longing and need to be together. Alive, you could say, in the household of faith. Or what Paul called the body of Christ. I mean, think about that. The body of Christ. That's what Paul called us, the church. And you don't have to have the right pedigree. You don't have to be born into this family or marry into it. You're, you're already in the house, the household of faith. All you have to do is wake up and come alive to this new reality. And if you've already done this, what do, we, what do we do then? Well, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. My command is love one another as I have loved you. Lay down your lives for each other and see if you don't come alive with a life that's so um, new, so radical and different that the only way to describe it is to say, it feels like I've been born again. That's the promise. Let's pray. Oh God, we do confess that we get stuck in our ideologies in a way to make things just stay the way we're comfortable with. We thank you for this story, this little piece of the farewell discourse. And for Jesus, who just, just kept coming back over and over, even with all the questions and misunderstandings. And, and for this promise 
oh God, that you have, you have a big, big house with many, many rooms. And that we can, we can be part of this anytime we want. It's not some far off thing for later. It's now, today. And so we, we pray for Christ as our way, as our truth, as our life. And pray that you would um, just reveal to us as we think about it and just contemplate it, meditate on it, how he is the way for us. Maybe help us see what we're missing. And we ask this um, in his name. Amen. Will you stand, please? And we're going to receive communion. Um, the way that we do communion, if you're new, is we just, we're released row by row by ushers, and you come forward and be offered a, a, a plate of bread and a cup, and you just take a piece of bread and dip it into the cup and then receive it. And as you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can answer, um, um, I will remember, or, or however you feel comfortable. The reason that we do this is that on the night when Christ was betrayed, he was in that upper room and, and doing the Passover feast with his guys. He had just um, warned them he's leaving, and they're so confused. And, and so he did this thing with them. He took a loaf of bread and a cup, and he had each of them share the same one. So it was like this shared meal uniting them. And he said, the, the bread is like my body. The blood is like my life. And I'm going away, but every time you gather from here on out, um, eat this bread, drink this cup, take my life into your life, and be made out of the stuff I'm made out of. It was, it's all connected to this household of faith idea. And he said, every time you gather, do this. And so this is why we receive communion each week. And um, it's also why... We just, we put, make no strings. We put no, like, berries in front of people. Anybody who calls on the name of Christ can join us at this table. So um, before we do that, would you pray with me a blessing um, over the elements? Oh, God, we ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All of this to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come? Mm-hmm.